Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Today's episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark is brought to you by the makers of the Skylight Frame, the gift that keeps on giving all year round, an ingenious touchscreen Wi-Fi-enabled digital picture frame that allows you to email your latest photos directly to those you care most about, no matter the distance. Not only will the Skylight Frame allow you to stay connected to the most important people in your life, tonight they have a special offer just for my listeners. I'll be back after tonight's first story to tell you a little bit more about Skylight Frame and my experience with my own. Until then, snuggle up with a nice warm blanket and get cozy. Skylight might help you get closer to those you love. But tonight, you're on your own with me. And I've got a far creepier picture to paint. <laughs> Stay tuned. The show's about to begin. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 17. I'm your host, Otis Jiry. 
In tonight's episode, I'll be performing four stories for you about captive cadavers, collapsed civilizations, evil admirers, and villainous voodoo. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now it's time to get started, so lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show's about to begin. <laughs> Our first tale of terror this evening comes to us courtesy of author Devin Hoover. Without further ado, I present to you, I Steal Bodies. Part One I'm dead. Well, at least, the real me is. You see, this body I'm using to write, this isn't mine. I stole it. Don't worry, I won't be using him for too long. Once I'm done writing this all out, I'll give it back to him. He won't even know that anything happened. I'll even be sure to tuck him back in bed once I'm done. So let me begin when I was still alive. I was your average 24-year-old guy. I wasn't into witchcraft or anything. In fact, quite the opposite. Before I died, I didn't even believe in the supernatural. Now that I think about it, the way I died really was quite embarrassing. I was cleaning a gun when... Wait, wait, wait. That wasn't my original body. It's been so long I almost forgot. No, no, I remember now. I was just about to have a bubble bath. The last time I'd had one, I was probably about four years old. I was admittedly a bit excited. So excited that I managed to trip on my way to the now-full tub. My head landed square in the edge of the tub, knocking me out instantly. My unconscious body managed to slide into the water, and I drowned. The next thing I knew, I was in limbo. I suppose I probably went unclaimed by whatever happens in the afterlife, and so I was placed in the waiting room with the higher-ups when they sorted me out. It actually appeared as if I was in a literal waiting room, the kind you see at every doctor's office. There was no one else in the room, though, just me and some terrible elevator-type music coming from overhead. Now that I think about it, maybe this was hell. After what seemed like an eternity, the music stopped. I heard a ding, and a voice came from overhead. Thank you for waiting. Please make your way to the door on your right and step through. Well, I didn't really have any other options, so I obliged. I made my way to the door and stepped through. There was a man waiting for me on the other side. Welcome. Please take a seat wherever you feel comfortable. He said this, gesturing at many different seats in the room. It looked like a therapy room. There were couches and a few regular chairs. I took a seat in one of the chairs, and I tried to study the man. Even now, I couldn't explain him if I tried. It was as if his face was constantly shifting. He certainly had some aura about him. I'm pretty sure he was a god of some sort, or at least some type of higher being. 
Where am I, then? I finally asked. I suppose most humans would call this purgatory, or maybe limbo. In short, we're... Uh, well, we weren't quite sure what to do with you. What do you mean? Can't you just send me to heaven or hell or wherever? He laughed. Well, that was certainly on the table. We decided to play rock-paper-scissors with you, and I was the big winner. So, I've decided I'm going to give you a second shot at life. So I'm going to be reborn? I asked. I chose to ignore the fact that apparently these gods had decided my fate by a game of rock-paper-scissors. Not exactly. Oh, you'll figure it out soon enough. This was the last thing he said. He then snapped his fingers. I was back in my bathroom, staring at my lifeless corpse. Was I a ghost? Is this what he meant by a second shot at life? That didn't seem quite right. I looked down at myself and I appeared to be normal. I would have thought I was still alive if my corpse hadn't been lying across the room. I waited by my body. Somebody would have to come for me eventually. It took two days before a police officer finally made his way into my bathroom and found my corpse. I had confirmed my theory of being some sort of ghost for before he ever got there, though. In those two days of waiting, I had never gotten tired, hungry, or thirsty. It was just added confirmation when the officer sprinted past me and lifted my lifeless body out of the bathtub. I'd tried moving objects during the wait, but I was unable to do anything but look. I hadn't gotten the chance to try and touch another person, though. I approached the officer, and... Uh, yeah. Well, he called for paramedics. I placed my hand on his shoulder, and the next thing I knew, I was blinking and breathing. I hadn't thought about it, but I hadn't done either of these two things in the past two days. It had been unnecessary before. I looked around the room before spotting my mirror. I was no longer a ghost. I was now the officer. I had taken control of his body. I was a bit clumsy at first in my new body, but after a few minutes, it seemed like I had full control. Just as I got the hang of things, my head, or rather the officer's head, began to pound intensely. After a few seconds of agonizing head pain, I found myself once again staring at the officer from the outside. I had been kicked out of his body. The officer was holding his head while hunched over. What the hell just happened? He said. He didn't seem to understand that his body had just been briefly hijacked. I approached him and attempted to touch him again, but nothing happened this time. I wasn't able to retake his body. I didn't know at the time, but there are certain rules for my body-snatching capabilities, one of which is when I'm kicked out, I can't get back in. I've gotten much better at using my abilities since then. After a while, paramedics came to collect my body, the two who came into the bathroom, one man and one woman. I knew I was going to try and do what I had done with the cop, but which one should I choose? I highly considered the woman just for the experience, 
but I wasn't quite ready at the time to take control of a female body. I touched the man's shoulders, and once again I found myself in control. This time the transition seemed much smoother, though. I continued to help the woman with collecting my corpse, as uh, to not seem suspicious. Several minutes passed, and the headache didn't come this time. With the help of the other paramedic, we placed my original body in a bag and wheeled it back to the ambulance. I began to make my way to the passenger seat when the woman stopped me. Where are you going? You always drive. Ah, oh, yeah, sorry. I'm actually not feeling so good right now. Do you mind driving? I said back to her. Buying my dinner. I began to realize that taking this body may have been a mistake. I didn't know the first thing about being an EMT. If I stayed in this body, I may end up costing other people their lives. There was one problem, though. I had no clue how to separate myself from the body. I'd been kicked out of the cop's body, but this one didn't seem to be putting up much resistance. I needed to find a way out on my own. I put everything I had in trying to will myself out of the body. It was fruitless, however. How was I supposed to do this? Getting in had been so easy. Shouldn't uh, getting out be the easy part? I bit down on the man's thumb. It's a habit I've always had when I get frustrated. I bit hard enough to draw blood. I stared down at the small wound, once again wishing I could just leave this body. As I thought this, the headache returned, and a few moments later... I was outside the paramedic's body. What had triggered it? Had it been the wound? Possibly a combination of my desire to leave and the wound? I wasn't quite sure at the time, but I was happy to be out again. I followed the paramedics all the way back to the hospital. After they wheeled my body inside, I decided it would be best if I just left. I wouldn't be getting back in my own body. I began to seek out someone new. I realized I should really study someone before I tried to take them. If I wanted to take them long term, that is. I would need to know all the basics, their relationships, their job, their hobbies, mannerisms, etc. I couldn't expect to take over someone's life without knowing anything about them. I could use other bodies for short periods of time, like I'm doing now, but that would only be for specific purposes. There are over 7 billion people on Earth, though, so I'm not too worried about running out of equity. I also didn't fully understand my capabilities, though. I would need to practice using my body-stealing powers more, and I really needed to find the correct way to leave a body I didn't want to stay in. I've got much more to tell, but this is all I have time for right now. I can't stay too long in this body or they will find me. I'll be back soon with a new body to read more. For now, it's time to put this guy back to bed. Part 2 I'm back, and I've found a suitable replacement. This body should last me a few days before they find me. I'll explain who they are in due time. But for now, let's pick up where I left off. After I finally said goodbye to my original body, I began to practice my body-stealing powers. Entering a body was the easy part. However, I discovered many things about my capabilities. 
I could enter any body I wanted. All I had to do was touch the person. How long I could stay was another thing. Those with strong mental fortitude, like the police officer, would kick me out almost instantly. Those people were rare, though. Most people were easy to overpower, and I could take control for as long as I wanted. Exiting the body? Well, that was a little bit trickier. For those with weaker willpower, I had to force them to want their body back in order to get out. Physical pain was usually enough to do it. Uh, I had to want to get out as well, though. I could manage a weaker person's body as much as I wanted, but if I didn't want out, then they wouldn't get their body back. It'd be risky to take the body of someone who doesn't value their life because I may have to kill them in order to exit the body. For those wondering if I can take over the body of an animal, I certainly tried. Most animals avoid me like the plague, though. Birds don't seem to mind me, but anything else runs at first sight. I was able to pet a dog who trapped itself in its doghouse, but I wasn't given control of his body. I think it must be a compatibility thing. The whole time I was learning to use my abilities, I found something a bit odd. Not once did I ever run into another dead person. If I'm a ghost, shouldn't I be able to see other ghosts? Maybe it doesn't work like that, though. I couldn't possibly be the only person like this, though, could I? Regardless, once I began to get the hang of my abilities, I began to seek a proper host. I could have searched for someone younger with an underdeveloped personality, but I really didn't want to go through the younger years of life again. I wanted basically someone like me, a loner. They needed to have a decent job, though, and they were a little more attractive than my original body then. Who would I be to complain? It took a while, but eventually I found the perfect body. He was about the same age as I was when I died. Despite his young age, he had climbed his way up to a managerial position at a factory. Behind the scenes, he was quite lonely, though. He'd poured everything into his job. I never saw him talk to any family, and he never had friends over to his house. As far as looks go, he was no Brad Pitt, but I don't think he would have had problems attracting the opposite sex. I watched him for a while before taking over. It was important for me to at least learn how to properly do his job. I'd never been a manager before. He was a business-only sort of person at work, so I wouldn't have to worry too much about his work relations. After I felt I had learned enough, I stole his body. It really was a perfect match. When I was in his body, it was like it was my own again. He didn't try to fight to push me out either. I decided I wasn't going to waste this life doing nothing like I had the last one. I kept his job, of course, but I started becoming more social. I went to bars, clubs, and other social events. I even managed to bring a few girls back to my new home from time to time. Before I knew it, I had been in my new body for an entire year. I'd almost forgotten that I even had a previous life. Everything seemed to be going perfect. But of course, good things can't last forever, can they? I noticed someone had begun to follow me. It was a black car with heavily tinted windows. Wherever I went, that car always seemed to be there. 
I tried to get its license plate, but it never seemed to get close enough for me to see it. I tried reporting it to the police, but they said they couldn't do anything unless I had evidence that I was being stalked. They sent a patrol car through my neighborhood, but that was all. The car was obviously gone by the time the police showed up, though. As quickly as it began, it ended just as quickly. After about two weeks of the car stalking me, it just disappeared. Perhaps I just had been overly paranoid after all. I resumed my new life as if nothing ever had happened. That was a mistake. I woke up a few nights later to find myself surrounded by at least five hooded figures. Before I had time to react, a knife was plunged into my chest. Blood began to spew from my chest as I felt like the life fading from me. I was able to eject myself from the body just before my host took his last breath. After I left the body, the figures turned to face my ghost self. Could they see me? The one who had plunged the knife into me had approached me. Once he was close enough to me, he began to kneel, and then he held out his hand. I wasn't sure what to do, so I ran. For whatever reason, they didn't seem to chase after me. I ran for several miles before I even thought of stopping, though. I found an old, run-down house, and I let myself in. I sat down on the floor and tried to process just what had happened. Before I got the chance, a voice spoke. Rough night, huh? In front of me was the god who had given me my powers. Rough night? I was just killed again, I said angrily. Well, it wasn't really you. It was just the body you stole. I probably should have told you about them, though. Them? You know who they are? Well, yeah, I know who everyone is. Those people are special, though. They are part of a cult that worships me. It's kind of funny. They think you are their savior. What about this is funny? If they think I am their savior, why the hell did they put a knife into my chest? It's really simple. They don't think that was the right body for you. They are a bit crazy, but they've always been loyal to me, so I rewarded them by helping find you. Why would you do that? I don't want to be part of this, I shouted. Because this is the most fun I've had in years. I mean, come on. Doesn't being the savior of a cult sound a little cool? I don't want to be in a cult. I just wanted to live a normal life again. I promised you a new life. I didn't promise you a normal one. If you don't want to be in a cult, you really should start moving. They're almost here. As he finished saying this, I noticed headlights coming up the street. I didn't give it a second thought. I ran again. I managed to make it to a busy stoplight. I took over a driver and drove as far as I possibly could. I swapped from body to body on my trip. I didn't want to take anyone too far away from their life, since I wouldn't be keeping any of these bodies. I currently live in a small town on the East Coast. I think I may try to catch a flight to another country soon. I think they will eventually find me, no matter what, but it could at least buy me some time to figure out what I should do. 
I've become part of a game for God. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't think he's going to let me into any sort of afterlife anytime soon. So it seems I have two options. One, keep running. Two, become the savior of a cult. Who would have known my life after death would be so much more interesting? Part 3 been a few days since my last update, and these days have been the craziest of my life, or afterlife, I suppose. I'd been body-hopping around trying to put as much distance between myself and the cult chasing me. I hadn't seen any sign of them, but I also have no clue how big and how much power they have. Not to mention, they have God helping them. I decided I'd take a plane to somewhere in Europe. Eventually, I decided upon Germany. I'm pretty sure I had some German heritage in me, and I wasn't exactly sure where else I would go. So I picked it when I saw there'd be a plane departing soon. I helped myself to a body that was seated in first class, and I attempted to relax. My relaxation attempt was cut short, however. Since I had taken a body in first class, I had boarded first. I sat isolated from the main section of the plane. There was no way for me to know that no one else had entered the plane. It took me a few minutes to notice that I was completely alone in first class. I stood up a bit, anxious, and began to make my way to where I had entered the plane. As I approached the entrance, I saw a few large men in suits, and they began to walk toward me. I knew I was trapped but I still attempted to turn around and run to the back of the plane. Before I could, however, I felt a quick pain in my neck, and I fell unconscious. When I woke up, I noticed I was still in the body of the wealthy stranger I had taken. However, I was in a straitjacket now. Not only that, but there was some sort of mouthpiece holding my teeth down. This prevented me from moving my mouth whatsoever. I looked up to see there was a young man sitting next to me. He was probably early twenties. He had dark brown hair and bright green eyes. He had strong facial features, and he almost seemed to be glowing. I'm sorry about the restraints. They're only temporary. We didn't want to have to chase you again, he spoke. He almost seemed to be waiting for a response, but then he must have remembered I was incapable of giving one, so he continued on his own. You have nothing to fear. Our God has gifted us with you, and you shall lead us. I've been given the honor to become one with you. Soon we will share a body as we lead the world to new heights. His voice was almost hypnotic. I found myself entranced by his words. I had no clue what this cult had planned, but his body certainly wouldn't be a bad place to call home. While I was replaying what he said in my head, I didn't notice that he had begun to move closer. Before I knew it, he was right in front of me. He expertly pulled out a blade and slit the throat of the body I was in. I was ejected from the body as it went limp. Before I could react, the man grabbed my hand. I found myself in the cultist's body. 
Even though I had full control, something felt different. This body just felt right. Even better than the one I had spent over a year in. It was as if this body was truly the one I was meant to be in. Maybe this cult knew a few things after all. After a few moments, I heard a door open behind me. A few people in robes entered the room. They were of various ages and appearance, but they all shared one characteristic. Green eyes. Once about ten of them had entered the room, they began to kneel. One of the older ones in front began to speak. You've been blessed by your awakening. Hopefully the body we chose for you is suitable for now. You may replace it in the future if you wish. What do you want from me? I replied. We already have our plans prepared. We simply wish for you to guide us in the new world. Will you? Yes. I had said it without hesitation, but why? I didn't even know what this cult's plan was. Why did I say yes so quickly? Then I remembered whose body I was in. Did he still have influence over me? He hadn't tried to kick me out. Well, he had actually forced me inside. It was unlike any other times I had taken a body. I thought I was in full control, but it could be possible. The cultist still had some power over his body. After my agreement, all of the cultists that had already been kneeling began to press their heads to the ground as if in prayer. The older one that had been speaking to me stood up, however. We knew you wouldn't fail us. Please follow me. I have much to show you, Master, he said. He showed me everything. The cult is much larger than even I expected. There are thousands of followers and many of them in places of power. As I am sure you can already guess, all of them have green eyes. Their grand plan is something incredibly sinister. They've been ingrained in positions of power for centuries, but they never made any real moves. With my existence, however, they are ready to act. They believe my rebirth calls for a rebirth of the planet, they have the firepower to do it, too. I could probably stop them, but I don't know that I want to anymore. Once most of the world's population is gone, I will be the one to rule over those who are left. Perhaps it is this body that's made me think this way, but I'm not sure anymore. So why am I telling you all this? Well, it's mostly because I can. There's nothing you can do to stop what's coming. But if you have green eyes, perhaps I can save you. For the rest of you, try to enjoy the time you have left. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that 
and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed I Steal Bodies by author Devin Hoover. Up next, we've got a tale from author Alex Taylor that explores the demise of society from a decidedly Lovecraftian perspective. Before we dive into the dismal depths of yet another terrifying tale, however, allow me to tell you about today's sponsor, Skylight Frame, the ingenious product that, unlike what's lurking in our next tale, is sure to put a smile on everyone's face. As we all know, or if you didn't, you do now, Mother's Day is just around the corner. Well, this year, with that special day quickly approaching, I no longer have to guess about the perfect gift, and neither do you. That's because there's one gift that thousands of moms have been calling the best gift ever. It's called Skylight, and it's a photo frame you can email photos to anytime from anywhere. It sets up effortlessly in under 60 seconds. Just plug in, use the touch screen to connect to your wireless network, and enjoy. Sending photos to Skylight is effortless. Everyone in the family can just email photos to Mom Skylight, and they'll pop up in her home in seconds. It has a black frame, so it looks like a real photo frame that adds a beautiful touch to your home. Skylight Frame has a gorgeous 10-inch touchscreen. You can swipe through photos with your finger and even tap to thank the person who sent the photo. And best of all, your satisfaction is 100% guaranteed. If you don't love your Skylight, they'll offer you a full refund. Not only that, but you can preload it with your favorite photos for a personalized gift. Send pictures of you and your significant other, spouse, grandparent, etc., that they didn't even know you had. You can even tap the heart button, and it'll let the sender know that you love the photo. This makes the frame interactive and fun to use. Now, I gotta tell you, I chat with Craig Groshek, program director, just about every week, and we've had the pleasure of trying out some really great products as featured on this show. But Craig has never been as excited about anything as he was about the skylight frame. You see, Craig's got a family of five, including three boys, and if you've got small kids, or know any, you know how challenging it can be to get the perfect family portrait done right every year, in time for the holidays, and sometimes how hard it can be to choose which shot from the session to send to your loved ones. Well, Craig got the chance to try out the skylight frame this past holiday season and discovered it was the perfect gift for his own parents, who aren't big on new technology and who have trouble, as some do, with keeping up with all the new gadgets every year, but still love to see what their grandkids are up to. Now, Craig's parents are getting brand new snaps of his son's family and his three grandkids without having to lift a finger. 
When they stopped back in after a day of grocery shopping, they discovered new pictures loaded on their frame daily with the touchscreen with a single tap, and they can tell Craig just how much they love each one. This time, Craig sent a new batch of photos. His parents called him to express their amazement at how fast they showed up and how many the frame could store at once. Even better, Craig's not the only one that can send photos to the device. Just give the frame's unique email address to friends and family, and they can send their latest photo shots, too. And it still takes up just one spot on his wall. After all, who wants to spend an entire afternoon hanging portraits? You wouldn't do that to your parents, would you? And certainly, now your own mother on Mother's Day. <laughs> now, as a special Mother's Day offer, you can get $10 off your purchase of a skylight frame when you text TOLD to 484848. That's right. Get $10 off your purchase of a skylight frame. Just text TOLD to 484848. That's T-O-L-D to 4848. By using that code, you'll be sure to let them know Otis Jarvis sent you, and nothing would make this old storyteller happier to know that uh, you put a smile on your loved one's faces this year, and then I helped even a little with that. Now, without further ado, grab your safety blanket and hold on tight. Our second story tonight is an epic, bound to leave you unsettled, guaranteed to leave you with an awful lot to think about. Stay tuned. Our second story today comes to us from author Alex Taylor. I present to you The Last Man of Faith. It was a long time ago that I heard the tale. I was deep in the desert with only myself and a man I had hired as a guide. We found a small oasis at the bottom of a valley and set up camp for the evening. Later that night, under a moonless sky, we sat around the campfire. My guide was carving something from a piece of wood while I stared out into the desert. Do you know any good desert stories? I asked. He looked at me from across the campfire for a moment with his bright blue eyes, and then gazed into the fire. He nodded. There is one I know, he said. It's a very old story, and not one that many people know. Well, let's hear it then, I said, preferably before the campfire goes out. He smiled at me, and began to tell his tale. Millennia ago there stood in the desert the great and ancient city of Zatanataz, the oasis city, home to tens of thousands. It was beautiful in the sunlight, with its polished sandstone buildings shining brilliantly. Its streets were full of life and color, with the merchants shouting at the pedestrians, the children running through the courtyards, and the priests and scribes going about their business. The buildings everywhere were adorned with garishly colored tapestries and murals, most including the Golden Fron, 
the symbol of the oasis city. Brightly painted statues stood guard at all gates and on the corners of the temples. Each of the city's quarters held a massive fountain spraying water high into the air. At the center of all the roads was the Tower of the Moon, rising into the sky above the city. At its base stood the great crypt, the sanctuary of the priesthood in the heart of Zatan Nataz. A high-end, impenetrable wall surrounded it all in a near-perfect circle. But things were far from perfect in that ancient city. Just before sunrise, on the night of every new moon, a young hunter named Acer climbed onto his roof to view the monthly spectacle. As the first light of dawn came over the horizon, all activity in the city ceased. The streets were empty, the people in their homes stayed silent. And then came the sound of the slaying from the great crypt. It was a faint sound, but unmistakable. Every citizen of Zatanataz claimed that they could hear it when it happened. And then the locked doors of the great crypt opened, and four high priests carried out a large stone sarcophagus emblazoned with the golden frond and the black sun, the sign of the goddess. While all others hid in their homes for the duration of the ceremony, peeking out of their windows if they were brave, Acer crouched on his rooftop and watched them as they went from the center of the city to the southern gate. For five years the ceremony had been carried out. An old, old legend had stated that the city was under the protection of a goddess. One day, it said, a demon would come to destroy the city. On that day the goddess would come, banish the demon, and usher in a golden age for Zatanataz. But the demon had come, and the goddess had not. The high priests slew the demon using ancient and forbidden magic, but its heart refused to die. They ripped the organ from its body, but a new body began to slowly grow around the heart. They could not destroy it, nor could they dispose of it. So they placed it in the deepest shrine of the great crypt and sealed the doors. Then they returned every month when the demon was nearly regenerated and cut its heart out once again. Then they placed the husk in the sarcophagus and carried it to the pit of Zechus, which was said to be the entrance to the underworld, and threw the lifeless body into it, coffin and all. And thus the high priests claimed they protected the city until the goddess came to destroy the demon once and for all. The people of Zatanataz claimed that this was their golden age. They claimed that the demon was defeated. Acer called that heresy. To all that would listen, he made his case. Acer was a man of faith that believed the prophecy must be followed precisely. Until the goddess destroyed the demon, he said, the golden age would not truly come. And for the goddess to appear... The demon must be let loose upon the world. His friends laughed at first. They tried to persuade him otherwise. Failing at that, 
they turned their backs on him at last. Acer called them blind. He said that their golden age was a farce. He had watched the city for many years, and he had seen the rot beginning to set in over it. It began with the high priests. Beneath the banner of the Black Sun, they claimed that they were above all others in the Oasis City. They began to amass wealth, servants, and power beyond compare. He had heard rumors of them stealing from the city's vaults and claiming it for the temple. He had seen them take young women from their families to fulfill their own desires and he had seen any who stood against them disappear as if they had never existed. The city had fallen into ruin with its funds depleted. Violence, crime, and corruption had taken hold. But the people claimed that the Golden Age was upon them because they did not want to believe what was directly in front of them. At noon, on the days of slaying, the doors of the great crypt stood open, and the priests flaunted their power. For on display, on the great altar, for one hour, was the heart that they had ripped out of the demon's chest. It beat slowly, as the bravest citizens viewed it. And at the end of the hour, the veins and arteries began to sprout once again, and the people of the city were banished from the crypt until the next day of slaying. Acer viewed it every time. He was drawn to it. At times, he thought he could almost hear a voice in the air, pleading with him to free it from its torment. And one day, as the voice was clearer than it had ever been, Acer finally decided to take action. He would unleash the demon. For one month, he planned how he would do it. He could not merely stop the slaying. The doors of the great crypt had powerful seals upon them, and even if he could gain entry, how long would it be before... No, this course of action had to be more precise. He must rejoin the body and the heart. He knew the chorus of the priests transporting the husk to the pit of Zakas. Along the way, there was a large boulder that had been there since before the first stone of Zatannataz was laid. It was there that he must wait. He readied his bow, which he had practiced with since he was a small child. His aim was near perfect. He laid out his arrows and performed certain rituals and blessings over them, saying that what blood they spilled would be for the greater good. And so the next day of slaying came. Hacer had hidden behind the great boulder a day before and camped there. He had no fear of being discovered, for none but the holy men with their load traveled toward the pit of Zacchaeus. Dawn came and the city went silent, and despite being a half-mile from the city gates, Hacer heard the sound of slaying. Over the years he had come to know the exact timing and pace of the high priests traveling with the great stone sarcophagus. So we waited, knowing exactly when they would cross in front of the boulder, and exactly when he expected, he heard footfalls on the other side of the refuge. He circled the stone quietly so that he came around to the road behind them. As he moved onto the road, he saw them walking slowly ahead of him, 
with their backs turned. He drew his bow and aimed for the priest to the front and right, the farthest away from him. His years of training had served him well, for the arrow found its target in the back of the priest's head. The other three staggered as one edge of the sarcophagus was no longer held aloft. Acer drew his next shot and fired at the priest on the back right. The arrow struck him in the back and he fell. With that, the sarcophagus tumbled to the right, its sides slamming into the dirt path. Its heavy stone lid loosened and fell to the earth. Its contents struck the side with a dull thud. By now, the remaining priests had turned and seen him. They drew their ceremonial blades and charged. Before the nearest could reach him, Acer had buried an arrow in his throat. As the last ran at him, Acer drew and fired his fourth arrow. And then something happened that did not happen often. He missed. With the priest almost upon him, Acer panicked. He rushed the shot and fired wildly, missing the priest again. With that, the man was upon him, swinging the razor-sharp blade toward his head. Acer raised his bow to block the strike. The blade cut effortlessly through the thick wood, but missed its mark and buried itself in Acer's shoulder. He screamed in pain and watched as his blood began to soak the sand beneath him. For a moment he waited, expecting the strike that would cut his throat, but it did not come. He raised his head and saw that the priest was exhausted. It had been years since he had had to act so swiftly. Acer took his chance and knocked the sword from the man's grasp. Acting on instinct, he pulled the man to the ground and leapt on top of him, his hands going to his throat. For what seemed like an eternity, he choked him until the man finally stopped moving. Acer rose to his feet, panicked and gasping for breath. His killing of the others was sanctified by the blessed arrows. This was cold-blooded murder. His soul was now forfeit. After a minute of panic, he calmed himself by remembering his goal. Surely, if he heralded in the true golden age, he would be redeemed. He approached the falling sarcophagus, its lid lying silently on the ground beside it. He prepared himself to gaze upon an abomination and looked inside the stone coffin. What was inside was not what he had expected. What was inside terrified him more than anything else on earth ever could. After many minutes of staring, he carefully gathered up the contents in a large burlap sack, painfully hefted it over his good shoulder, and ran back towards Zatan Nataz. For hours he hid in the darkened alley with his prize. It seemed like an eternity. Finally, he saw the sun rise directly above him, and he knew it was time. The priest would not be suspicious at first, for Acer was always present at the displaying of the heart. His plan to retrieve the heart had been subtle and complex, but for all those hours of waiting, rage had festered inside his heart. He would not draw it out one second more than was necessary. It was then that he heard a loud crack, 
and knew that the doors of the great crypt had been unsealed. He threw his burden over his right shoulder once more and marched toward the crypt. As he reached the doors, he saw that a priest was slowly pulling each of the doors open. One of them smiled as he saw Acer, for they had seen him every new moon for years. His smile faded as he saw the bag draped over his shoulder. As Acer reached the doors, he shoved the left door as hard as he could. The door struck the priest and he fell onto his back, clutching his face. When the priest on the right protested, Acer swung around, one end of the heavy sack on his shoulder striking the man in the face and sending him to the ground as well. The ceiling of the crypt towered high above him, the sunlight filtering in through a hundred small windows. He strode through the towering statues surrounding him toward the great altar in the center of the room. Two priests were present, one on each side of the altar. Upon hearing the noise at the entrance, they had drawn their blades. Acer let the bag he carried fall to the floor with the sickening noise of dead flesh. The priest charged at him, but Acer was ready this time. He knew their aim would be poor, and that they had no strength to their blows. He grabbed the wrist of the first to reach him, and wrenched it until the blade dropped from his grasp. He placed a hand on the man's chest and shoved him into the second priest. They fell to the floor, screaming. Acer saw red and knew that the second man's blade must have cut one or both of them. He didn't care. Acer stepped around the two men on the floor and made his way to the great altar in the center of the room. The light from the windows above made the golden altar shine brilliantly. But what Acer wanted was the lump of dull flesh sitting on top of it. A shudder ran through him as he picked the heart up off the altar. The beating was slow and faint, but there nonetheless. Acer closed his eyes and began silently to mouth a prayer. Before he could finish it, a hand roughly grabbed his wounded shoulder from behind. His arm exploded in pain as he spun around. Opening his eyes, he saw a large man clad in leather armor towering above him. The dull leather was emblazoned with the symbol of the black sun. Acer had little time to react as a heavy fist struck him in the face and everything faded to black. Acer awoke in a room the likes of which he had never seen before. He had been seated in a heavy wooden chair. did not seem to be bound in any way. In front of him stood a tall, central stand containing a dimly burning torch. The light cut through the darkness around him, casting strange shadows on the walls. This was unsettling, as Acer could see nothing between the torch and walls that could be casting the shadows. The walls were covered in paintings that may have looked normal in light, but underneath the dim light and shadows, there was not one of them that did not look demonic. Graceful figures became twisted and scarred. Beneath him on the floor was a carpet made from the hides of animals he did not recognize. Several seconds after he awoke, he heard a door open behind him. Soft footsteps approached his back and he heard a low voice. I presumed that my personal study 
might give us a bit more privacy than the cells in the dungeon. The voice said, A tall man, clad in the same branded armor, walked to the front of him. He turned and stood directly between Acer and the torch, his figure silhouetted against the dim light at his back. Acer could make out nothing about his face except for a pair of flashing blue eyes that stared back at him. "'Allow me to introduce myself,' said the strange man. "'I am Sukaz, head of the Guardians of the Priesthood. "'You weren't heard of us, of course. "'We take great care to make sure of that. "'We find it makes our jobs easier.' "'As Acer's head fully cleared, the rage returned stronger than before. "'What have you done?' Acer said in a low growl. I have done nothing, said Sukaz. You, on the other hand, have committed several acts of murder, put the people of the city into a panic, and ruined many years of hard work. You know what I mean, said Acer. What was that? The rage was evident in his voice. He saw a flash of white as Sukaz grinned at him. "'Ah,' said Sukaz, "'you mean what was in the sarcophagus. "'But you don't need me to tell you that. "'You knew the moment you saw it "'whether you wanted to believe it or not.' Acer thought back to hours before "'when he gazed into the great stone coffin. "'There was a corpse inside, but it was no demon. "'It was the body of a woman.' She was tall, beautiful, and regal. He had seen the skin of the body shine faintly, bathing the inside of the sarcophagus with light. Acer said his next words slowly and deliberately, rage permeating every syllable. You have slaughtered a god. Yes, repeatedly, said Sukaz. Acer leapt from the chair he was seated in, his hands going for Sukkah's throat. As soon as he had risen, the man's fist crashed directly into his jaw. He fell back onto the chair painfully, tasting blood, and feeling that two teeth were missing from the right side of his jaw. Do not think that you can kill me as easily as a few pampered high priests, boy. Luck has been on your side thus far. It will not be again. Acer drew himself back up in the chair, but remained seated. He glared back at the man in front of him, tears beginning to well up in his eyes. How in the name of all that is holy can you do such a thing? Asked Acer, his voice nearly breaking. To be fair, said Sukaz, with a maddening tone of superiority. I have never killed her myself. You can credit your illustrious priesthood with that. As for why, they do it because of the one thing that drives all man. And that is... Fear, said Sukaz. Five years ago, the high priests began to descend into a state of arrogance and decadence, 
They began to amass power, create the guardians, and rob the city blind. And then she appeared, the very goddess these priests claimed to work on behalf of. On that day, those men that once thought themselves righteous feared judgment more than any. Sukaz laughed softly. I am not sure who struck the blow, but before she could say one word to them, a priest drew his blade and impaled her through the heart. Then they saw the blood withdraw, and the wound began to heal. They had been afraid of judgment for their pride. They were now petrified of judgment for the murder of a deity. And so the cycle began. Five years, Acer said. Five years! How many times has it been? How many corpses have been thrown into the pit? Why do they let this continue? He was sure that someone outside would hear his screams, but Sukaz just stood there and let him continue. When he finally stopped, the man laughed. <laughs> Your people are cowards, said Sukaz. They cannot face what they see in front of them. Their city could be burning around them and they would not notice. The city is burning, screamed Acer, and you know it. How do you let this happen day in and out? Because the world may be better off with it gone, said Sukaz. The Oasis city is dead and rotting. It must be cut off like a gargantuan limb. The man's tone changed as he said those words. His voice echoed from the walls around him. Asa's rage began to dim. Fear began to replace it. Who are you? Acer asked, his voice lowered to a whisper. Sukaz crossed his arms and looked up toward the ceiling, as if trying to find the correct words to say. After a few seconds, he circled the torch in the center of the room, until he came to a stop on the side opposite Acer. Turning towards Acer, he could see Sukaz's face at last. It seemed completely normal with short dark hair and a thin pointed beard. Then Acer saw the shadow being cast behind him. Though Sukaz was only slightly taller than Acer, the shadow loomed high above them both. The shadow's head appeared to have several horns jutting off at odd angles. Massive wings stretched to its sides, covering the entire wall with darkness. Sukaz saw Acer's eyes go wide. He grinned and circled back around to the front of the torch. I am someone that is very much above the people of this city, said Sukaz. You are the demon, said Acer, the demon of legend. Sukaz chuckled, the sound ringing off the walls. Demon? No, said Sukaz, shaking his head. I prefer to see myself as more of an angel, one with a very specific purpose. Destruction, said Acer. Change, said Sukaz. Nothing lasts forever in this world. To try to do so is folly. He moved closer to Acer 
who cowered in his seat. All men die. All cities fall to ruin. And all empires crumble. It is the natural order of things. Your city, your goddess, and your people try to work against nature itself. It wasn't all the priests, was it? Asked Acer, finding some small semblance of courage. That depends, said Sukaz, the tone of superiority, coming back into his voice. I may have started their decline into corruption. I may have caused them to doubt their beliefs, and I may have implanted that fear of their goddess. But I did not draw that blade, and I have not touched her. You won't get away with this, said Acer, his voice finally confident once again. I won't let you do this. The goddess will live again. Sukaz tilted his head to one side and looked silently at Acer, a questioning look in his eyes. Very well, said Sukaz. You are free to go. Acer's jaw dropped and a dumbfounded look came onto his face. Really? said Acer. You're not going to imprison me? Kill me? Would you like me to? asked Sukaz. Acer stared back silently. No, my friend, said Sukaz. It is not my place to kill you. My purpose is to bring ruin. Perhaps yours is to bring ruin to me. Who am I to interfere with the machinations of fate? Go. Still staring at the man in front of him, Acer slowly got up from the chair. With a great deal of fear, he turned his back on the man and started toward the door behind him. However, said Sukaz, you may not want to go through with this. Acer stopped in his tracks two steps from the door. He closed his eyes and took a deep breath. He did not want to listen to what the demon had to say, but something made him turn around. "'What do you mean by that?' asked Acer. Sukaz had moved back around to the other side of the torch in the center of the room. The massive shadow was visible once again on the far wall. Stealing himself, Acer walked to the torch, glaring at Sukaz from directly across. "'I just mean that you should follow this course of action.' The results may be much worse than you anticipate. What may seem like the right thing to do may be anything but. Do not try to fool me, Acer said. You cannot see the future. Perhaps not, said Sukaz. But I have watched this world for longer than you can imagine, and I have become quite adept at guessing the outcome of things. Would you like to see what the future has in store? For the first time since he began his quest, doubt began to slip into Acer's mind. He tried to remind himself that that was exactly what the demon was trying to do, but that slight twinge of doubt began to grow. Acer found himself unable to resist. All right, demon, said Acer. What can you tell me of my quest? Sukaz grinned more broadly than ever, as the words left Hazer's lips. "'Prefer to show you,' said Sukaz. 
The man waved a hand over the torch in the center of the room, and it was extinguished. Fear gripped Azer as the darkness enveloped him. Then, from above him, a light appeared. He looked up and saw that it was the moon high overhead. Looking back to the floor, he saw a forest laid out before him. He heard Sukaz clearing his throat behind him and spun around. Acer found himself on the top of a high ridge, looking down at Satanitaz from miles away. Sukaz stood on the very precipice. What will happen when the goddess lives again? asked Zukaz. Is it not possible that her wrath will be great? With that, a brilliant light appeared in the sky above the city. A massive glowing orb hung ominously over Zatanataz. Is it not possible that the city will pay the price? The orb descended in a split second, striking the center of the city. A flash of light struck Azer's eyes, and he had to cover them. Moments later, he felt a shockwave wash over him. Uncovering his eyes, he saw that a dozen more of the orbs had appeared above the city and were beginning to descend. Forcing himself to look into the light, he saw blast after blast tear the city apart. Houses were thrown high into the air. The great statues were blown to dust. He saw the tower of the moon shatter and fall. But why stop there? asked Sukaz. Will her wrath not be great enough to punish the world of men as a whole? The entire sky was suddenly alight with massive orbs. They began to move outward, traveling toward the far eastern cities and the coastal cities of the north. Would you watch the world burn just for your hope? The greatest orb nearest to them in the sky began to descend directly towards Acer. In seconds, the light had engulfed him, and he could see nothing. Acer steeled himself, closed his eyes, and tried to ignore the vision before him. That will never happen, said Acer. Our goddess is merciful and just. She would never punish those that have not wronged her. His voice was confident, but in his mind the seed of doubt began to grow larger. After a moment, Sukaz spoke again through the light. Perhaps, he said. So let us assume you're right, and that your goddess is not the wrathful sort. Let us assume that your beloved golden age does indeed come after my demise. The light around Acer dimmed and began to flicker. He slowly opened his eyes and looked around him. He was in the battered husk of a city. Tall wooden houses burned to the ground. The air was heavy with smoke. Ash lined the streets. Sukaz still stood in front of him on the broken street. Where are we now? asked Azer. Sukaz shrugged. One of the eastern cities, he said. Stead or Lasaria or Holm or one of the others I cannot remember. Sukaz bent down and grabbed a handful of ash. As he spoke, he let it sift through his fingers and let it drift away in the searing wind. Your golden age comes, but your city's pride does not disappear. It only grows. Sukaz turned and began to walk up the road, stepping over burning debris. 
Acer hurried after him. He felt his feet sink into the hot ash. He could not help but wonder where all of the people were. Perhaps the vision was not complete. They begin to see themselves as superior to those around them, said Sukaz. They are ruled over by a living deity, and they feel they have the divine right to rule over these other pathetic cities. The armies of Zatan the Taz march on them all and burn them to the ground. The two of them finally come to a great courtyard. Acer moved ahead of Sukaz and saw that the paved area had been ripped apart and that great pits had been dug into the earth. Moving towards one, he saw that it was not a pit, but a mass grave. A hundred charred skeletons filled the pit to its very brim. He saw movement in the center of the courtyard, and his attention was torn away from the bodies. The smoke cleared, and he could see a banner flying proudly. It was bloody and torn, but the symbol of the black sun could still be seen emblazoned on it. What was once inspired faith will now only instill fear, said Sukaz. Acer felt rage begin to boil up inside him, but he could not tell what it was directed at. Was it at the men of this future? Sukaz himself? No! screamed Acer. The people of Zatanataz would never do this. I have lived there my entire life, and I have never once doubted that they are good people. You still believe that, after knowing what has transpired there for five years? Asked Zukaz. Your naivety is amusing, if nothing else, I must say. Even if our leaders have fallen to corruption, the people will not, said Acer. Zukaz smirked and shook his head at Acer. So, once again, let's assume you are right, said Sukaz. Your precious people are faultless, and they spend their golden age doing wholesome, peaceful things. Acer struggled to keep a calm facade in response to Sukaz's mocking tone. Do you trust the people of the surrounding cities just as much? As they spoke the words, the city around them blurred and changed. The sound of the flames died down and was replaced with another sound, metal striking metal. The men of the surrounding cities see your great wealth and power, said Sukaz, and as always happens, they are filled with envy and fear. They will try to crush you. As the scene around him finally stopped shifting, Acer found him and Sukaz standing in the market quarter of Zatanataz, beneath one of the great fountains. The waters ran red. Around them, soldiers fought madly. The guards of Zatanataz were outnumbered and outmatched, but they struggled on, more falling each second. The soldiers attacking them had many different sigils on their armor. They will succeed, said Sukaz. He motioned for Acer to look behind him. Acer did so and saw the body of the goddess once again. Her heart was removed and the body had been decapitated. Acer fell to his knees, seeing the streets of the oasis city full of death. He 
closed his eyes and lowered his face into his hands. The noise around him fell silent. He looked up and found himself in Sukkah's study once again, the torch shining dimly from its stand. Acer felt his head spinning. Sukkah stood over him, armed crossed, awaiting a response. Acer met his gaze, glaring back into the bright blue eyes. He rose to his feet and took a deep breath. So, said Sukkaz, what is your course of action now? It was almost a minute before Acer replied. I believe in the goddess, said Acer. I believe in the city of Zatanataz, and I believe in all people. I will see your downfall, demon, no matter the cost. There was no trace of uncertainty in his voice. There was not even any rage. There was only a conviction that brought a look of shock to Sukkah's face. Acer shoved Sukkah's away from him and went for the door. Stop, said Sukkah's. Acer sighed and waited keeping his back to Sakaz. "'Going to kill me now?' asked Acer. He heard Sakaz's footsteps approach his back. "'No,' said Sakaz. "'I'm not going to be that kind.' "'Then what do you want?' asked Acer. He felt Sakaz's breath on the back of his neck. "'You have seen what could happen, whispered Sukaz. But now you must know what will happen. Acer remained silent. I gave you a chance, a chance to stop your fool's crusade and live out your days in peace, the same way I gave your priests a chance to save themselves and to repent. But they failed to take it, and now so have you. I will not listen to more of your lies, demon. Then listen to the truth, said Sukkaz, his voice raising. You will go and tell the people of me and your high priests. And do you know what they will do? They will call you mad and heretic. And they will take you and lock you away in the Tower of the Moon in a tiny cell with one tiny window. And every new moon you will look out that window and wonder if it is finally the day that the high priests break the cycle and release your precious goddess. And that day will never come. Acer closed his eyes and focused his thoughts inward, ignoring Sakaz, whose voice rose with every word. You will watch your city travel the road to destruction. You will live out your life in that cell, waiting for the day to come. And on your deathbed, you will finally know that day will never come. Sukaz grabbed Acer by the shoulder and spun him around, screaming directly into his face. Where will your faith be then? Sukaz finally fell silent. Acer reached up and removed his hand from his shoulder. He looked back into the demon's eyes and smiled. The same place it's always been, said Acer, 
Skaz glared back and returned the smile. You think you will be rewarded in death as a martyr, said Sukaz, but you do not know the truth. She is not a goddess. She is a Tanataz, the very soul of the oasis city. With every day of slaying, the city decays brick by brick. And when enough bodies have been cast into the pit, your precious city will collapse under the weight of its own pride. You'll have no deity to put faith in. Acer remained silent for a moment. When he spoke again, Sukaz heard something change. It was subtle, almost imperceptible, but it was there. I've learned something from you here today, Sukaz, said Acer. I thank you, I really do. Because if Zatanataz is only a city, then there is only one thing left to place my faith in. I believe in the people. And if this city does fall one day, the people will survive it, and you will know that you have failed. Where will your pride be then? Sukaz said, nothing, as Acer turned and left the room at last. Sukaz thought quietly for a moment, then smirked. Good luck, man of faith, he said. You will need it. The torch went out, and the room descended back into darkness. My guide stopped talking and began carving once again. I waited a minute for him to resume before speaking. Well, I asked, what happened then? He looked up at me and smiled. There are no records that still remain from that ancient city, he said. I sighed and got up from the campfire. I grabbed a torch and stuck it into the fire. After lighting it, I walked toward the spring, a short walk away from our camp. I kept talking as I walked away. So do you think the place even existed? I asked. There are certain relics that have been found that supposedly come from the Oasis City. I reached the spring and planted the torch into the earth beside me and drank a handful of water. And there are some that say that deep, deep in the desert, on cold and moonless nights, a strange man appears, said my guide. I was about to turn back to the campfire when I saw something out of place beneath the water. A strange man with flashing blue eyes. I pulled the torch out of the earth and raised it higher. And they say that if you ask politely, he'll tell you the tale. A large slab of stone lay at the bottom of the spring. The tale of the last man of faith in the great ancient and forbidden city of Zatanitaz. On that stone slab beneath the clear waters... I could only make out two symbols, a shining golden frond and a large black sun. I turned back toward the campfire to call my guide over to sea, but when I looked back, I found that I was alone 
beneath that moonless night sky. Thanks for joining me tonight for Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you like what you heard and would like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's episode, which includes two more terrifying tales, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, where you can sign up for a season pass and get access to all 24 ad-free extended episodes from this season or sign up as a patron for just $5 per month and get access to not just my show, but our network's audio archive of hundreds of previous releases, including premium versions of our other shows. Not only that, but you'll be lending your support to this very program and help me continue bringing nightmares to life each and every week. Thanks again to today's sponsor, Skylight Frame, for their support of this show. Don't forget, as a special Mother's Day offer, my listeners can get $10 off your purchases of a skylight frame when you text TOLD to 484848. That's right. Get $10 off your purchase of a skylight frame. Just text TOLD to 484848. That's T-O-L-D to 484848. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. (laughs) Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, the Otis Jivey channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. 
If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.